Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our focus today is on the issue of quality and safety in healthcare and the measurement, reporting, and accountability around that. Now, quality is one of those core elements of the triple aim. It is one of the most significant movements of our time in healthcare delivery, and it continues uh, to be one of the most challenging issues uh, to plague the delivery of care uh, in our country and across the globe. It's, it's clearly of importance to anyone who is being treated within the healthcare system. And it's really interesting, my mentors along my career have all been in agreement on this one thing, that the assurance of quality and safety is the single most significant responsibility of uh, leaders, but particularly physician leaders in healthcare delivery. It's been a cornerstone of my career and many others as well. I'm sure many of you who are listening today so I am so delighted to have a renowned expert uh, guest today on the program, uh, Margaret O'Kane Peggy, who is the founder and president of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA. She's also a member of the National Academy of Medicine and has received the Picker Institute Individual Award for Excellence in the Advancement of Patient-Centered Care, as well as the Gail Warden Leadership Excellence Award from the National Center for Healthcare Leadership. Modern Healthcare Magazine has named Peggy O'Kane one of the 100 most influential people in healthcare 12 times and one of the top 25 women in healthcare three times. She's a board member of the Millbank Memorial Fund and on the board of HealthWise, a nonprofit organization that helps people make better health decisions. Peggy holds a master's degree in health administration and planning from the Johns Hopkins University where she's also received the Distinguished Alumnus Award. Peggy, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the program today. How are you doing? Thank you, Zev. I'm, I've got a big head right now. <laughs> you, well, no, uh, you deserve, uh, and I could say a lot more about you. I know that you, before we got on today, you were talking about patient first, and maybe if we have a a few minutes towards the end, uh, we could touch upon it. Uh, I know, it, actually, I think that's probably what's giving you the big head or the headache or No, 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 I meant you were, you gave me a swelled head with all the nice things you said about me. <laughs> well, again, very, very well deserved. I, I've had for the folks out there, I, I had the opportunity and it was such a pleasure to hear Peggy O'Kane speak uh, a few weeks back and just was really just taken. She's so articulate and so passionate and, and so courageous in, in her leadership. And, and we're going to jump into that. In fact, Peggy, if we could jump in, I, if you could give folks, uh, myself and people listening, a, a brief, maybe two to three minute tutorial on what the NCQA is, some stats about the NCQA to give people a sense of the size and enormity. And maybe we could just start with that. Yeah. So we are an organization that's trying to improve the quality of healthcare. And we do that specifically through accreditation of health plans and measuring quality, both at the health plan level and um, we also do a lot of work for CMS, you know, for the Medicare program, and we work with Medicaid to improve, uh, to measure quality. So, I mean, I think the basic idea is that it's very hard for people uh, that aren't experts or even experts to know, you know, what, how well is this organization doing uh, as a quality organization? You know, uh, if you live most places in the United States, 
you may have a choice about where you would go. What you know, you might have a choice about which health plan uh, you're going to sign up with, where you would go to the hospital, which primary care doctor you want to go to, which specialist you would want to go to. And the the premise of NCQA is that without having some specific uh, information about how well each of these entities does its job, it's kind of a jungle out there. And so we're trying to uh, really illuminate and, and lay out to the public and to policymakers, you know, the differences in quality. And by doing that, we're really trying to drive towards a system where everybody's really good quality. And how many... Um payers or plans and, and how many uh, patients people are, are being measured in this way? Do you have those numbers? Yeah, it's like 190 million patients are in wow. plans that are being measured uh, with HEDIS. And uh, the number of plans, because we count by contracts, is something like 1,200 or 1,300, I believe. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's a large share of the plans in the country. And and the relationship that the NCQA has between there's the the NQF and HEDIS metrics and then you all the NCQA and then CMS and the plans. So where where do the metrics come from and do you contribute to making them or do you adopt evidence based metrics so that then uh, it, it's all of the above, Zev. Um, we we make up measures sometimes. Uh, we will often adopt a measure. You know so. Uh, we have a measure for depression, and um, we were observing in our kind of environmental scan as we started this work that the Minnesota Measurement Collaborative, I think that Minnesota Quality Measurement or something, whatever that organization is called, mm-hmm. has done fantastic work that it had a very good um, set of measures for depression. So we adopt measures with permission of whoever the creator of the measure is. Um, Sometimes we tweak them, but, you know, there's no point in reinventing uh, a measure, especially if people are already using it. So Mm -hmm. we, you know, we just try to work that all out. And we we're trying to standardize the measures, which uh, is very challenging because there's a just tremendous temptation to tweak the measures, you know, to say if I'm a Medicaid director and I'm going to pick a random state, Colorado, my people are different, so I'm just going to tweak this measure. And that really undermines the usefulness of the measure uh, to kind of get to the answer of, like, who's doing best in this measure, you know, or where does this plan lie in national distribution? I'm so glad that uh, you mentioned this issue of standardization because I, I do think it's one of those challenges provider groups as well as plans are the, the the tendency or the fallback is to make your own and to adopt your own as as you say to tweak it, but if you you know in doing that there's no way to look across provider groups exactly. or, or plans exactly. and say look this this plan is delivering better care than this plan and so I think it's really critical. So how do you how do you enforce that or or is that just part of a, the accreditation? We process? enforce it with great difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I mean to just go, you know, to reinforce what you said. Not only does it make it really hard to benchmark and to say this is good and this is less good, but it also, when you think about it, if you're sitting at the delivery system level as practitioner, and Medicare has a measure one way for health plans and another way for an ACO, and you're part of a 
accountable care organization. And there's another third way to measure me if I'm a doctor. Um, and then I've got some health plans with their own measures and maybe Medicaid is doing something different. That creates a chaotic situation at the practitioner level that I think is one of the real driving forces with the dissatisfaction with quality measurement that exists today. I couldn't agree more. That, and, you know, coming from the provider side where I've been my entire career, you're yeah. right. You work with multiple health plans and each, you know, has its own set. And so you just get overwhelmed. And how, how does a provider, you know, forget about the system, which, which has its own challenges with all those different metrics and keeping track of them for the different payers and plans. But how, how does a provider do that in their day-to-day -day work? Right. Yeah, it just makes it impossible. Yeah, I have so many questions I want to ask you, and I want to jump into into a little bit of the heart of this. When I, I in our correspondence, I asked you a question: um, How is the NCQA reframing and transforming healthcare delivery? And you had some really interesting responses, and um, I haven't had a chance to write back and, and ask you further. So this is this is the chance here. I'd like to read what you wrote and and have okay. you respond to this. And here's what you wrote in response to how is the NCQA reframing and transforming healthcare delivery. You wrote, it seems like the policy environment loses clarity about accountability at times. We, NCQA, specialize in reminding people about how to think about accountability for quality and costs. We remind people that quality in complex systems is never the default. And although there is no silver bullet to fix complex systems, if people lose money when they do the right things, it's not likely to happen. So you said a bunch of things in that, in that quote, you talked about yeah. accountability, you talked about yeah. quality not being the default, you talked about, you know, the payment. And so I'm interested in the whole, this issue of the policy environment and losing the clarity about accountability. What did you mean by that? Just to start off? Yeah, well, I mean, the policy environment, um, let's say, um, uh, CMS, or, you know, a Medicaid program. I mean, for me, what's, what's ideal when you're thinking about accountability means that you take responsibility for the triple aim, let's say, you know, so for the cost of care, for the quality of care, and for what the patient's experience is. And if you are a plan or an accountable care organization, you're going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that you get to the right outcomes. So you're constantly managing things and coordinating or removing maybe practitioners from your network that aren't doing a good job or, you know, there are, there's a constant level of cultivation of the delivery system, ideally. And in the policy environment, for example, where we have Medicare Advantage, you know, plans can do quite a lot and they really do quite a lot um, in order to achieve high star ratings because that means a lot to them and, and means they can give extra benefits to their members. If you're on the regular Medicare side, and that's where this new primary care first thing is happening, you've got uh, a bunch of unconnected providers and the, the patient is going from one to the other part of the system without any coordination unless they're in an ACO or something. You know, if you're in the wild state there is the way I think about it, what we see is, uh, you know, the average Medicare beneficiary, this is an old study, but uh, sees at least seven doctors. And if they have a chronic condition, they see about 15. They have two primary care doctors, which really kind of undermines the whole notion of primary care. Hmm. So there's kind of movement 
in the system that really nobody's in a position to kind of uh, try to coordinate very well. And, you know, there have been attempts to, like, do patient-centered coordination in the past and so forth. But the point is, if you have an enterprise that's really watching its own dashboard of how it's doing and making the appropriate changes, you really have a fighting chance of getting to good quality. If you don't, it's not, it's not the default mode, is, is my point. It's, you know, every person in that system might be doing what they think is the best job, but it doesn't really add up to what the person, the, the patient needs. Mm. Uh, it seems so incredibly obvious in any other kind of walk of life, but in healthcare, I think the practitioners were all trained to think, think of themselves as their own captain of the ship if they're a doctor or that they have boundaries around what they think they're responsible for, unless they're working in a system where the cooperation and the kind of checking to see, did somebody already do this or do I need to do it? Um, mm -hmm. Those kinds of things just can't really happen. Nobody really has the visibility. Yeah, you know, it's, it's such a great uh, picture you paint. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think Look, I think providers, I think everyone in the system is, is thinking they're doing the right thing and the best thing. Absolutely. Right. But it, it's, it's sort of like you might imagine a car or an engine of a car and you have the specialists in different components of the engine exactly. and they're all, they're all producing great pieces. But who's actually making sure and monitoring that the entire thing is safe and, and of high quality? And I think that's, to me, that seems that's the picture that emerges. I was listening to you speak. Is that is that what you're? That's what you're... exactly right. In fact, we, I love that metaphor. We had a consultant about twenty years ago when we were just trying to figure out our whole agenda, and he said, "You know, it's like you take all the pieces of a car and you put it on somebody's lawn. This is healthcare, and you tell them, there you go. There's your car. Have fun putting it together.' And it is it's at least as complicated if you're a complex patient." Uh, to do that with healthcare, you know the, the thing about healthcare too, and you alluded to this uh, in your in our, in our correspondence uh, quite a few times. You're right; it's not the default. It, you have to put a, a tremendous amount of it in intention and planning and and execution and resources and costs into measuring and monitoring and delivering quality, high quality, high safe care. So. Right. You know, people talk about that that trade off of of quality and cost. Do you see it as a as a trade off? Do you see it as no. quality? Actually, okay, no. let me hear that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you know when you've watched the system as much as I have, and I was a, a respiratory therapist at one point in my career, which is where my hair caught fire. Um, you see that a lot of the bad quality has to do with uh, people operating independently. It's what I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody. You know, patients on a ventilator, the settings are what they are. Somebody comes in, changes the settings because they don't agree with the prior person. And the next thing you know, the patient, you know, has gone acetotic or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. happen. Uh, you, you just, you, it, it is a team sport. You know, you just don't get there. It's, it's too complex. It's not a single operator kind of quality issue. For examples, yeah. uh, maybe like really good, uh, psychotherapists and so on, but in general, the issue is really about teams and making sure that the right thing happens. Mm -hmm. Do you see quality metrics, the work that you're doing at the NCQA, as a force for creating more integrated care? Yeah, I mean, I do. It's certainly our purpose, but it can't do it 
you, you know, you can't just make things happen through quality measurement. There has to be a deliberate policy that, you know, I know that one of the things that Medicare would like to do is compare the quality of care in classic Medicare with what happens in Medicare Advantage. And because you've got different paradigms of accountability on Medicare, classic Medicare side, if you're a doctor practicing by yourself, even though your patient might be seeing those other six doctors, you're all doing your own thing. Maybe if you go out of your way and you're, you're calling saying, what, you know, what are you doing here? But it's not sitting in front of you. You know, and, and we know how busy primary care doctors are. So the idea that that would somehow happen in a way that's exactly the right thing for that patient, it, it's just not going to happen. In that statement I just read a few moments ago, you said, again, if people lose money when they do the right thing, and I, I assume oh, you yeah, meant providers, yeah, it's, yes. not, it's not likely to happen. And, and in other parts of our correspondence, you, you also talked about the uh, sort of the best payment model or the more, uh, more optimal payment model. So could you speak to that issue? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to tell you an anecdote about a hospital. And I was visiting that hospital because it had such a tremendous reputation for quality. And the CEO was talking and said, we created a congestive heart failure management program and we got an outstanding reductions in hospitalizations uh, by using that program. So we had to shut it down because we were losing money on all those patients. Now think about that. That means that these patients who uh, were allowed to go back to you know, an unmanaged state where they're short of breath, they're miserable. I mean, it's one of the most miserable uh, conditions that, you know, that I'm familiar with because the hospital business model was heads and beds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was sitting there and my COO was at this conference and we looked at each other and we're, you know, we were just completely shocked. But, you know, what you don't want to have is where you punish people if they save money, if they become more efficient, really. I mean, that's just obvious to me. I mean, this fee-for-service model that we've been in for quite some time, which is by far the vast, the, the predominant payment model where you get paid yeah. for what you do, you get paid for the right. services you deliver, for the operations and procedures, for the medications, for the hospitalizations, right. as you said, the heads and beds. That's right. how we get paid in healthcare. And to your point, as we develop quality and safety programs, redesign care, so patients like with congestive heart failure or uh, COPD, uh, you know, or other chronic diseases or acute diseases, when we actually help them stay out of the hospital, exactly, you know, and away from those uh, revenue-producing procedures and situations, it is in a sense. First of all, you're you're investing money as a healthcare system, as a provider group, to do that work, and and uh, and 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 then you're losing money on the other end. And so, it seems like it's a major. The fee-for-service model places a major disincentive for uh, healthcare to actually improve healthcare outcomes. And it yep. seems like some sort of prepaid or capitated model put into place would actually be and it would actually place as as we have in Medicare Advantage actually places a, an incentive for providers, right. rewards them right. for improving care and reducing the need for high cost, you know, high risk care. Is that is right. do you agree with that? That's right. I couldn't say it better than that. Yeah. Now, of course, there you know, then then you start to worry about the other side of things, right? 
So if I, if I get to keep the money that I don't spend and taking care of my patients, mm -hmm. then, you know, the, the incentive, the, the naked economic incentive is like to withhold things, you know, mm -hmm. there are great ways to make care more affordable. And there are also bad ways. Mm -hmm. you, you know, that's why we've always, we believe in, in risk payment. And we also believe there has to be quality measurement with it just to make sure that people aren't spending care. Yeah, no, I, I again, I, I couldn't agree more with you. As we shift to sh shared savings and risk-based payment and value-based payment and prepayment, the, the quality uh, metrics uh, are critically important as countermeasures to, and, I, and when people ask me, they say, well, I don't want to go back or we don't want to go back to those gatekeeper days. And, uh, you know, my response, and I'm curious to hear from you, the expert and the expert organization, uh, NCQA, from my response is typically something like, well, well, we didn't have these sorts of countermeasures, these quality metrics to make sure that the way you're actually lowering the cost of care is through appropriate care delivery and, and better health outcomes, not by withholding care. And so well, I'm just curious as yeah, to... And I wish the world were as simple as you and I are portraying it, because mm -hmm. I think, you know, the notion of gatekeepers, for example, just imagine a situation where uh, one of you, your good primary care doctor and your patient uh, gets a backache and decides they want to have back surgery right away because they can't stand it. You know, you're now in a position where you're going to be trying to talk them out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not easy. Uh, you know, I think having tried to talk some of my friends out of having back surgery. Uh, when you're in pain, you want, you want a fix. And, you know, so there may be situations, I think, uh, mm -hmm. where the patient wants something, there's a provider, you know, a, a specialty provider that's ready to give it and where the primary care doctor watches with cer a certain amount of uh, upset and anguish about risk they're exposing themselves to. Well, let's, let's, let's take that case and it's illustrative of, of this situation. So a lot of this, and I'm curious because a lot of the uh, information and, and data I'm looking at now is coming from employers and they're beginning to monitor. They talk about actually this issue of utilization yeah. versus quality. And in what I've heard from some of the leaders in, you know, on the employer side, looking at benefits and outcomes of care for their employees is that they actually consider the issue of utilization to be far more important than actually the quality. And uh, they have reasons for saying that. But one of the things they're recognizing is there's tremendous variation utilization. So, so some regions and, and some provider groups and some physician providers will have tremendously high utilization. And this is risk adjusted uh, yep. compared to others. And, and there's also now evidence coming from the literature demonstrating here's, here's in, in this case, for instance, in, 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 and recommendations from professional societies saying, look, new onset back pain you know, you should should not be doing, let's say, uh, high cost, you know, high tech imaging, unless there are certain things that are in place, you should, probably shouldn't be doing back surgery. And yet they're seeing some back surgeons. In fact, you know, the stat I've, I've seen from the employers is that they believe that over 80% of the uh, surgeries, back surgeries performed are inappropriate. And they're based, they're basing that on not their literature, they're basing this on the evidence-based medical literature. And so- right. You know, so here's here's an example where I think, and I assume you're you're trying to argue your friends out of having back surgery because you're familiar with that literature. You know exactly. that, right? Exactly. And, and it may feel good for after they get over the surgery for a month or two, but six months or nine months or a year from now, 
uh, it's the outcome's the same, and in fact, uh, or worse, worse, worse. right? Which is often, exactly yeah. right. It's often I worse. Mean, than yeah, you know, I mean, you remember one of the greats of health policy, Jack Wemberg, who's mm -hmm. with us, thank goodness. But you know, he went about um, documenting the the, ch the differences in pa practice patterns by by local geography. So uh, back pain. If you want to get back surgery, if all you have to do is live in Seattle, Washington, or Portland, Oregon, because that's the back surgery capital of the world. Um, and chances are that somebody's going to offer it to you. So, you know, there's an example there of Virginia Mason Medical Center. You may be familiar with this. Mm -hmm. but, um, kind of was convinced by Starbucks walking in and saying, uh, with its insurer partner, we noticed you're doing an awful lot of back surgery. We're not happy with the outcomes. What are you going to do uh, if you want to keep our business? And they created a whole different program where people came in. They went straight to physical therapy. Uh, they were triaged. Patient satisfaction afterwards was actually better. Many of them were able to achieve incredible results through exercise and, and weight loss, other things like that. Mm -hmm. If you're the, the practitioner, the primary care practitioner that's there trying to talk to a person in pain, it's a hard story to tell. So I'm just trying to make the point yeah. that even though the motives may be right and so forth, and this is one of those things where measurement isn't going to be the answer. I mean, you know, there's kind of patient decision, shared decision making, I think that's the right mm -hmm. here. But yeah. you know, no, that that doesn't really happen. Once you once you've gone to the back surgeon, that's not their model either. So, you're if you go to the wrong one, who's very uh, likely to do surgery, um, uh, you you will probably wind up having surgery. That's just one example, yeah. and there are myriad examples out there. Yeah, no, I I think, you know, so you were referring a moment ago to the to uh, the Dartmouth Atlas and the variation right. from region to yeah. region, hospital regions, yeah. and you know the case with the Virginia Mason, uh, very familiar with it, and uh, actually adopted it here where where I, I currently am working, and mm -hmm. so there, you know, what they did is they again using uh, expert knowledge from neurologists and neurosurgeons and orthopedists and and physical therapy uh, providers, uh, physicians, they figured out that if they got the employee with acute uh, back pain, made, made sure that they didn't have any signs of anything that was serious and required a, a mm -hmm. neurosurgeon, for example. But w once that was cleared, uh, the, the patient or employee went directly same day to physical therapy, and they found that they did physical therapy rapid fire three days in a row. Patients with conservative medical treatment as well, patients, people felt better, and they actually, instead of getting back to work typically uh, two or three weeks later, uh, they were back back to work within a week or so, and so uh, avoiding all these unnecessary imaging studies and uh, potentially harmful procedures as well. So, you know, mm -hmm. great great case example. But I mean, do you think? And I'm asking from the NCQA: Are you getting into? Are you already into uh, utilization metrics as well as as traditional quality metrics? Or are you? We are do you... collect utilization metrics and. Mm -hmm. You know, it's reported in a risk-adjusted way. I mean, the ones that are of most interest right now are um, hospital days per thousand risk-adjusted and, and uh, emergency department use per thousand. And those of us in healthcare know that a patient can be, you know, with, with a lot of careful management, uh, hospitalization can be avoided. Certainly emergency department use can be avoided. I mean, it's not a great situation for patients either to be going to the emergency department. So 
but there are, when it comes to any kind of procedures, there are wild variations in use. And uh, these are, these are big issues. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And how about, you mentioned a moment ago, I think you were sort of alluding to this idea or this notion of patient reported outcomes measures or PROMs. I know that there are organizations out there that are, are, are beginning to look at that. And, and is that something the NCQA would, would begin to look at as well? Or yeah, is that... I mean, yes, we have some projects going on with this. I think uh, we have one around depression and we, mm. not a mandatory HEDIS measure because it requires a lot of extra work and coordination between the delivery system and the plan. And, you know, so in the, in the large scheme of things, we, we were able to pull in, some really great mission-driven organizations. Others are trying it out, but they don't report them to us. But it's basically, do you screen people for depression? When you find depression, are, are you treating the person? Are you following up? And we use the PHQ-9, which, you know, is a standard. And we, you know, we want to see, are you achieving remission? What, what they're really doing is they're managing against this patient-reported outcome, right? So, I mean, the idea of managing against the patient's outcomes, I think is a powerful one, really hasn't been possible in the past, but I think it's increasingly possible. And we think it could have a lot of tremendous benefit um, for many kinds of conditions. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to shift with you here for for a moment. We, We have just a few short minutes left. What do you see as the major shifts in the healthcare industry in the next three to five years? And and how does the NCQA factor into some of them? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, we're all watching. I think everybody in healthcare is watching the tech sector be able to do a lot of things that have never been possible in the past. You know, so I'm wearing my Apple Watch, which is monitoring my heart rate and um, my steps and all that. So, you know, on that wellness front, there are real possibilities and people have built a service around that. You can get now a a little disc that you put on your skin that monitors your blood sugar. There are programs now built around that. So there are things that can either be embedded in the current delivery system or that can kind of be operating maybe in orbit around the current delivery system. And it, it's very interesting to consider that, you know, especially, you know, there are three prominent companies that I'm aware of that are doing these diabetes management programs one way or the other. I mean, often with finger sticks, mm-hmm. um, they're not necessarily doing it in coordination with the, with the delivery system that's trying to manage the person's diabetes. So that's interesting. I, I don't know that I, my, my first reaction is, gee, wouldn't they get a better result if they kind of created some synergy there? But I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, there are many, many open questions now about how, I mean, when you think about it, you know, it's another truism that the patient is in the doctor's office, I don't know, two, three times a year in general, or with themselves the rest of the time. And so something that can be intervening or reminding people or sending messages back to the delivery system that can do it continuously feels a lot more powerful. So I think that tech disruption of, uh, of the care delivery model is, is a big trend. I think a lot of people are trying to move everything out of bricks and mortars delivery systems, including hospitals. There are hospital at home programs. I think they're for a segment of patients. Do I think hospitals are going to go away? No. Do I think they might actually have less demand in the future? Yes. 
that's another trend. I think things moving from specialists to primary care to even primary care adjunct providers, you mm-hmm. know, practitioners, physician assistants, I think it's right. going to be a very busy time for them. I think mm-hmm. there'll be a demand for them, especially given the shortage of primary care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so more, you know, in the ideal world, it's more patient-centered, it's more continuous, it will have AI, which will be, you know, maybe watching somebody's arrhythmia and alerting somebody that something needs to happen. So, you know, it can be scary to think about uh, uh, the disintermediation of people who have been caring for patients, and it, and it also can have a really tremendous upside. How that's going to play out, I think uh, the jury's out, and it'll probably play out in all the different ways that we can imagine. How do you think in this new world you're describing, what do you see as the role of quality? Does it maintain its similar role? Does it move into other domains? Is it- oh, us? So you mean NCQA and other quality organizations? Yes. Oh, we have to, we have to be rethinking the way we do things, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you, if you remember that you have to have a clear accountability model where somebody knows, hey, it's my job to keep Mrs. Jones having a good quality of life and out of the hospital if possible, right? Mm-hmm. There needs to be an enterprise that's responsible for that and like a real person or, you know, using maybe whatever technology they can they can have to make that job easier and to make it possible to do it for a broader population of people. Mm-hmm. We can't lose the tiny toehold that we have right now on accountability. We can't lose that as all the shiny objects kind of start to come into focus. Right. And I think part of that too, and I've heard you talk about this is this focus on on outcomes measures and not just process as well right right exactly and so if you could if you could snap your fingers and, and give some direction at the federal or state level around what's needed right now what, what would be your top one or two uh, directions um, well I mean the primary care for care first thing is interesting I you know I, I'm still learning about it as we all are uh, you know CMS is doing webinars today but the thing about it is they're planning to pay primary care doctors a lot more money, which I, I think is one of the things that's really been a problem is nobody has wanted to go into primary care in recent times because it's a hard job. You know, you're there at the, the hub of the, the whole complex system, uh, and yet you're paid much less than your professional colleagues who may be working nine to five and, and working on skin conditions and so forth. So... That's one thing is to get the payment model right. And having more risk sharing, I think, is a good thing. That's another aspect of primary care first that's trying to happen. I I think it's, you know, it's like let's be deliberate as we do these things and make sure we're setting up the right monitors to understand the unintended consequences as well. Because, you know, I don't have to tell you. I mean, they're out there galore uh, in the world of quality and health care. Mm-hmm. Unintended consequences, yes. Yes, exactly. And yeah. and really trying to, um, I would say the other thing is uh, practitioners need to be supported by the systems that they work in and to kind of lay too much responsibility on them for data entry and everything that they have to do. It's not working very well. And when you have a burned out and discouraged workforce, you're never going to get good quality. So I think paying attention to those things, which I think is another admirable goal of primary care first. 
but really trying to make sure that it's not, oh, you don't have to do this. It's like, here's how this is going to happen in a way that you're not going to have to do every little thing. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. So uh, I, I want to be respectful. You, I promised I would get you up at the top of the hour because uh, I know uh -huh. you're so busy, but I, I love listening to you. I, I have so many more questions I want to ask you. It's so exciting. You're an inspiration. You founded the NCQA, uh, how many years ago was it? 29. <laughs> okay. What? I mean, now uh, quality is, I'm not going to say it's de rigueur because you're right. It's still, it's still a fight and we've, we've got a long way to go. But I mean, 29 years ago, I, I mean, very few people were thinking about it. I, I know that most people didn't want it. What made you stand up in this way and made you create an NCQA to focus on quality and healthcare? It was on, I mean, that long ago was it was unheard of. I mean, it was. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, you know, it was like a movement. And there were a lot of really wonderful people that kind of came and worked on our board. There were employers who said, we want to do this and we will, you know, we will mandate HEDIS reporting. We will mandate health plan accreditation. And it's always, it's, it's never been a job that we could do on our own. And, you know, so it, it's always been the kind of third parties that have pushed quality. And, you know, in my ideal world, this would be something that wouldn't feel so outside inflicted on practitioners. In my ideal world, uh, people, you know, you would make it possible for people to really embrace the quality agenda and not see it as a punishment, uh, which I, I'm afraid it really feels like uh, to, to this day. I'd love to hear, of course, more about how we can make that happen. Uh, yeah. My guess is payment has aligning payment has something to do with that as well, and giving yes. providers time and, and systems and using technology the right way, and getting the electronic medical records not to be such a beast. You know, mm -hmm. I there are a lot of fixable things. Unfortunately, they're going to take a while to get fixed. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, we have to support the people that are that are struggling with this. You know, again, you're such an inspiration, and I appreciate your your honesty and integrity. You're you're so balanced, uh, despite the fact that obviously you have so much uh, invested in, in so many years on in quality, you, you, you see, you see the whole picture and you're very, very direct and honest about it. And I, I truly appreciate that and respect that and the way you think and, and the way you speak and, and the way you, you lead the NCQA. So I, I just want to thank you, Peggy O'Kane, for being a part of creating new healthcare, bringing us really, again, you're a leader uh, in so many ways and uh, so courageous and uh, can't thank you enough. And and, and Peggy, what I do in, in every every episode is I, I end by by turning to the audience and thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting uh, those who are taking care of patients. Uh, we truly appreciate you for what you're doing and recognize how critically important, how challenging this work is. And uh, you know, I, I hope as always that this podcast provides you with some useful information, some encouragement, and some inspiration. And Again, this, this particular podcast with Peggy O'Kane, uh, the, the founder and, and CEO of the NCQA, has definitely done that for me. This is Zev Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be well.